Now the policeman said to me, does your dog, you know, normally do this? I said, never. And then all of a sudden the penny dropped. It's dusk, the dog's barking like this. He's trying to warn us all, it's coming. Seeing is believing, and I have no proof of what I saw that day other than what I can describe. It was huge. It was like the weightlifter of cats. Welcome to Big Cat Conversations. We speak directly to people who've encountered one of Britain's big cats. We also discuss the bigger picture. I'm Rick Minter, and thanks for joining me. Hello, welcome to episode 37. We are back with an immediate follow-up on Eurasian lynx, having heard from two different lynx witnesses last time. We're coming to you in early November 2020, now back in lockdown conditions here in Britain, so it's a time for all of us to keep positive and perhaps be as creative as possible with our time. And there are several book recommendations on the Big Cat Conversations website under the References and Links page if you fancy some reading on big cat issues that we can only flit across on the podcast. Those books range from Pumas in Florida, Tigers in Siberia and Camera Trapping Big Cats. So there are some excellent references on our website for you. And speaking of books, we are joined for this episode by Britain's lead scholar on the Eurasian links, and he is a recent author, as we're about to hear. I'm really pleased that we have David Hetherington as our guest. Hi, Rick. And David, you work as an ecologist with the Cairngorms National Park Authority, but you're here as a separate link specialist, including being author of a recent book, The Links and Us, and we'll be talking about that in a short while. We're going to start by touching on your PhD. Am I right in thinking that was the feasibility of reintroducing Eurasian lynx into Scotland? Yeah, that's right. I finished that in 2005 at the University of Aberdeen. After all that toil and hard work, what was the conclusion? Well, I guess what I was setting out to look at was, was the Eurasian lynx ever native to this country? You know, and if so, why did it die out? Is there even a discussion to be had about reintroduction? And then if there was... Could modern Scotland support uh, a viable population of reintroduced links? And so the answers to those two key questions were, yeah, we did have links in the past. and They were here a lot more recently than we used to think they were. uh, And they died out because of human factors, largely habitat destruction, the depletion of wild prey, and the direct killing of links. These days, we've got enough well-connected, suitable habitat and enough suitable prey in Scotland to support a minimum viable population. So there is scope to have a discussion about lynx reintroduction in Scotland, at least based on the history and the ecological ingredients, if you like, for having lynx in the landscape again. It was very much an in-the-field PhD piece of work, not just sort of desk-bound. Did you ever see one or more lynx actually in the wild in your travels? I did, but I'd have to say there's an element of cheating. <laughs> the, the most memorable encounter I had was when I was in the, the Swiss Alps. There had recently been a reintroduction in the northeast Swiss Alps. They were basically trying to spread the links more evenly throughout the Alpine arc. And there was a big gap between Western Switzerland and Austria. They had released these links and they were all collared. But we were having to go out and, and get a handle on exactly where these links were on a pretty much a daily basis, just as you know, while they were settling into the landscape, make sure that everything was okay. And one day, we just could not get a signal from this particular male lynx at all. 
try as we might. And, and of course, it became clear after a while that the signals were getting highly confused by these massive cliffs that were all around us. So suddenly, we got a really strong signal. Um, and we were right opposite uh, the other side of a ravine, a wooded ravine, where this Lynx's signal was obviously coming very strongly from. And so the guy I was with said, right, he's almost certainly going to be watching us right now. So we sat down, got our rucksacks off, got our binoculars out and scanned through those trees on the other side of this wooded ravine. And sure enough, there was this little face about 100 metres away in amongst all the shrubbery and the tree leaves, just watching us intently. And it was quite a, quite a primal feeling coming face to face with a pretty big cat and knowing that it's watching you. And of course, we had a technological advantage. We knew where it was, so we knew where to look. Had we not had that, we'd have been watched by a big cat and we'd have had no idea that it was doing so. So it really was um, quite a fantastic feeling in many ways. I didn't feel fear. I just felt you know, a bit of awe. And it's a, a moment that I think will, will always live with me. Great. And presumably these biologists and field researchers you were with, they would have been reinforcing the point that this is a very stealthy animal and difficult to detect, especially if you haven't got the technology. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there were people whose job it was to go out every day and radio track several lynx around this alpine landscape. And several of them had never yet seen a lynx, despite the fact that that was the animal they were following every single day. So even with that technology, it's very easy to lose them. They're incredibly good at um, staying hidden if they want to be. Exactly. I mean, if you reintroduce them, you may well never see one, even if you're involved centrally in it, or, or unless you've got the technology. Yeah, and I've also got friends, really jammy friends, who went out to Estonia in the hope that they might see a lynx and parked up at the crossroads of some forest tracks and at dusk and a lynx just padded right by the vehicle from a distance of just a few metres. That's the weird thing, isn't it? These stealthy animals that are so cryptic, they can sometimes be extremely blatant, but mostly they're not going to be. Yeah, absolutely, Rick. It's just the look of the draw. I think that's the sort of big difference between, say, lynx and wolves. I think wolves are much more predictable and much more observable, which is why you can go to some parts of Europe and North America and go to vantage points for your telescopes and whatnot, and, you, and you've got a pretty good chance of seeing wolves. But, you know, you just can't do that predictable stuff with lynx. It is completely random, I think, whether you're going to see one or not. Yeah, yeah. Can you remind us of the date we need to go back to to be sure of when lynx was last in Britain? Well, it's hard to be certain or shoot about this. Certainly when I completed my PhD, I was involved in the radiocarbon dating of some bones from North Yorkshire. I mean, bearing in mind at one point, the kind of received wisdom was that lynx had died out, you know, 4,000, 5,000 years ago because of natural climate change. We then started to get carbon dating of bones. There was a, a bone from the Inchna Damp bone caves in the northwest Scotland, which came back with a carbon date of around about 2nd century AD. And then these two carbon dates from North Yorkshire, one of them was also similarly about 2nd century AD, uh, and one was about 5th or 6th century AD. So we're starting to get into the post-Roman, early medieval period. And I think having that kind of certainty through various carbon dates allows you to reappraise the cultural record to see if there's any clues in there about links having been in Britain. And then when you start doing that, you start to find these faint traces of, of the links in Britain's past, whether it's a, you know, a place name in Shropshire uh, or whether it's references to Bede talking about shepherds having to protect their flocks at night from dark lions, as he called them. Mm or whether it's, in the Gaelic language, uh, a word for lynx-like leaping. So lots and bits of pieces, a potential depiction in Pictish stone carving as well, on a Christian cross slab. I think what was most interesting for me 
when I was researching the book more recently, was finding a reference in some 15th century Welsh poetry. There was a poet called Dafydd Nanmor from North Wales. His poem from the late 15th century, he, he's talking about an animal called the Hlaubrich, which is following the roebuck up into the hills in the summer months as it takes advantage of the, of, you know, the fresh growth. And this animal, the Hlaubrich, literally means the speckled lion. I was really quite taken aback to see that. I thought, but what on earth else could it be other than a Eurasian lynx, you know, a speckled lion following uh, Rodia up into the hills of North Wales in the 15th century? So my feeling is that lynx were here for uh, you know, a lot more recently than we used to think. Um, certainly in other parts of Europe, in similarly thinly populated mountainous parts of Europe, uh, similar to you know, the Scottish Highlands or perhaps the Welsh mountains, they were still harbouring lynx until the, you know, the 18th, 19th, 20th centuries. So why would our mountain systems have lost them thousands of years ago? So, yeah, I guess if they were in North Wales in the 15th century, they were almost certainly in the Scottish Highlands at the same time. The Highlands have acted as a, a last bastion for things like wolves and eagles mm. and pine martens and wildcats. And quite possibly, they lived for a bit longer than the 15th century. I wouldn't be at all surprised if there was still a relic lynx population in the 16th century. That brings us on to our word of the week, because you and I were discussing before the show an interesting, distinct word we might be able to have. And you've conjured one up, which is going to be very poignant. I think it relates to what you've just been saying, really. Could you introduce it and explain it briefly? Well, the word I honed in on was serve. This is the word or our word that was used certainly in Scots and I think also in English to describe lynx fur as an, a commodity, something that you wore. This was a very valuable commodity. It was worn by the nobility and the monarchies across Europe, particularly in the 15th and 16th centuries. See lots of Renaissance era paintings of you know Venetian doges and, and princes and, and kings and queens wearing lynx fur or, or lucerve, and we know that Henry VIII and Mary Queen of Scots were wearing lucerve. Now the word itself comes from a sort of derivation from the, the old French term for a lynx, which was actually lucervier, and lucervier literally means deer wolf, which is quite an unusual, I suppose, name to, to give a member of the cat family. But that's how it's derived, and, and there were very similarly derived names, meaning deer wolf, in other languages such as Italian, Catalan, Spanish, and Portuguese. And interestingly, the Spanish and Portuguese explorers, when they went to Africa, they encountered a medium-sized spotty cat with a relatively short tail, and they used their word for lynx to describe that kind of cat they found in Africa, which was lobo serval, you know, the deer wolf. And of course, it got shortened to just serval. And that's how the serval has got its name. It's actually derived from an old word for the Eurasian lynx. So we know that people were wearing lynx fur in Britain in the past. Whether they were wearing the fur of British lynx in the 15th and 16th century, well, we don't know that. And it may well be that they weren't. That they were importing those furs from other parts of Europe, particularly the Nordic countries, where there would have been quite a fur industry and loads of lynx to have. But yeah, like I say, I wouldn't be at all surprised if lynx uh, did last till the 15th and 16th centuries. What a word with so much meaning and history in it. So thanks for that, David. Very, very interesting. And we've just been talking about servals and in the previous edition of this podcast because they do get seen. And of course, they might get seen more often in relation to the savannah cat and the, you know, the, the breeding of savannah cats. So they do get out, it seems, and they are very similar in some behavioural aspects to the lynx. Could we go on to your book now, David? And 
take us through the sort of main messages of the book. But first of all, maybe talk about the photos, because I've got to be honest, I suspect like a lot of people, I partly bought it because the photos are so wonderful and inspiring. And so could we talk about the photographer and how he went about getting the photos? We, we will put a link to the book on our website. It's the links and us. And we'll put a link to a lovely five minute snippet of uh, filming that um, the photographer did when he was searching and setting up his cameras to get the photos for the book. Yeah, um, Laurent Gélin, that's his name. Laurent is a, an annoyingly talented and suave Frenchman um, <laughs> who takes uh, nauseatingly excellent photographs of very obscure and enigmatic wildlife. He has in the past actually spent a bit of time um, taking photographs of urban wildlife in London. But these days, his haunt is the, the mountains of Switzerland, the Jura and the Alp, Alp mountains of Switzerland, where he's all sorts of fantastic images. And he does some really good long lens work from Hyde's, but I think where he probably comes into his element, where he really excels is with his camera trap stuff. No doubt, Rick, like myself, you've used camera traps. And invariably, what you get loads of photographs of is a bit of wavy grass or a Labrador's backside or a pheasant or something. And it'll be covered in raindrops and it'll be misted up and out of focus. Not off. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then you've got Laurent and he's pin sharp, beautifully lit, you know, behaving naturally, enigmatic wildlife such as the Eurasian lynx. So it actually all joking aside, it is a real honour to have collaborated with Laurent on this book. He had done a book in French before about the Eurasian links, but he hadn't done one in English. He was mm. quite keen to do one. So we paired up, and I think the results, as you've hinted, uh, Rick, are, are quite stunning. It's a beautiful hardback book. The, the photographs are extraordinary. A lot of people are no doubt attracted to the book because of that, which is no bad thing. I really wanted to have a book that was richly illustrated and, you know, and I endeavoured to make it a very non-technical book. I didn't want to get into sort of hard science because I think that could put a lot of people off. I think as, as we have this developing national discussion about links reintroduction in the UK, I think it's really important that the science is accessible. And I think his photographs and my words, I think hopefully we've complemented each other really quite nicely. He uses wonderful side illumination lamps, doesn't he? So you really get full-on lighting day and night, So that, and the nighttime pictures are particularly vivid. Yeah, actually my favourite photograph in the book isn't of a, a lynx at all, it's actually of a fox. He's got a beautiful photograph of a, a fox padding through a snowy forest at night, and yeah, he's lit it really nicely. Um, so he's a bit of a master, I'm afraid. There we are. Yeah, well, it's great that you teamed up and great that he, he wanted to help out because it's a wonderful bit of engagement and his video is splendid. I hope people watch that on the website. Five minutes of him tracking and setting up his cameras, sitting in his highs, and it's very atmospheric. Can you just tell us two or three of the main messages of the book, the scope of the book and its sort of main messages? Well, I guess in terms of the scope of the book, what I was really looking to do was, was kind of bring to life for a non-technical audience, I guess, an animal that for most people it will be relatively unknown. They've got a spectacularly low profile, really, in our culture. Most people understand what a wolf looks like and how it lives you know, socially in a pack and what it eats and how it hunts. But most people haven't got a clue about lynx ecology, which is you know, quite understandable. It's not a, an animal you see on TV every day. It's not one we have fairy tales about. You don't, you don't see them running around. So I guess the book was trying to introduce the, the ecology of the animal, how it lives, what it needs, how much space it needs, what sort of habitat, what it's hunting. So that was an important thing to get out there. But really what I wanted the book to do was explore the all-important relationship between people 
and linked because that's absolutely critical if we're going to have a meaningful discussion about linked reintroduction in the UK. We need to understand how they live alongside us and what sort of impacts, if any, they can have, both positive and negative. Because, of course, we have seen, as you know well, a real growth in discussion about linked reintroduction in, the, in this country in the last few years. But it's not always a terribly well-informed discussion. And, of course, social media can be a blessing and a curse. And social media can oversimplify these things. It can also allow people's unfounded opinions to become facts. So many times I've heard people describe how they think a lynx hunts and how it's going to behave with you know, things like livestock and wild prey. And actually what they're inadvertently describing is wolf behaviour. And of course, lynx and wolves are very different beasts. They're frequently talked about in the same sentence, uh, but they're very different animals, different ecologies and different relationships with humans and our economic activities. So I think it's really important to get all that information across to people so they can have a more informed discussion about it. One of the examples that is frequently cited is the lynx and sheep depredation in Norway. And reading your book, you really do realise how that perhaps is an impact which is exaggerated. And the compensation system in Norway is really pretty loose and dodgy, isn't it? Could you just take us through that a bit? I think those people who've got an instinctive opposition to the idea of lynx in this country and assume that it's going to be a really bad thing and cause nothing but problems, It's almost, they want to have that bias confirmed by looking around and getting the worst case scenario they can find. And Norway is it. There's no doubt about it. And this is one of the other things, of course, is people often want a straightforward narrative about how lynx react or interact with sheep. But it's complicated and it varies in space and time. So, and people often don't have time to sit down and work all that out. And sometimes they just want, as I say, they just want their their biases confirmed. So the relationship between lynx and sheep varies enormously from one part, some parts of Europe where there really is no issue with lynx killing sheep at all to, well, for example, Norway, which is the opposite end of the spectrum where there is quite an issue. And it's a far bigger issue in Norway than it is anywhere else in Europe. I mean, the second worst case scenario country in Europe is just across the border in Sweden. Mm. And yet they have maybe four times as many lynx as Norway. And yet their compensation scheme is paying out something like 1% of the amount that Norwegian compensation scheme is paying out. There are far fewer sheep being lost to lynx. So that's how dramatically different. And that's Sweden being the second worst case scenario in Europe. In Norway, of course, what makes it the worst case scenario is the way that the sheep are grazed, which is to have two and a half million sheep grazed between spring and autumn in woodland. And of course, woodland is where the lynx are, and lynx are ambush hunters. They Mm. need to get close enough to launch a surprise attack. They need cover. Woodland is perfect from that regard. And of course, in a woodland situation where there's so much cover, sheep can't behave as they might in an open pasture, which is to occur in a flock. And of course, flocking is an anti-predator behavior. It means you've got more noses and ears and eyes ready to detect any predator and warn each other, of course. So in a forest, the sheep are maybe occurring singly or in small groups in effect, replicating erodia, which is, of course, the lynx's number one food. So you can see how in Norway, there is much more of an issue with lynx killing sheep. Interestingly, scientists have looked at this issue between lynx and sheep in Norway, and they've discovered that where you get high erodia densities, even if you have a lot of sheep in the forest, then you you don't lose any sheep or you lose very, very few. By high deer densities, they mean four rodeo per square kilometre. Certainly up here in the Highlands, we've probably got 10, 15, 20 woodland deer per square kilometre in many areas. So even if you've only got four, they're not losing sheep to lynx, even if they've got a lot of sheep in the woodland. But having sheep in woodland in such huge numbers is not something that you see anywhere else in Europe. There's a very particular thing to Norway. 
which is why they've got more of an issue. The other thing that those scientists realized when they looked at the data was they, they said, oh, hold on, we've done the maths. We don't think that lynx are capable of killing as many sheep as are being claimed for in the compensation scheme. And you say, well, what do you mean, guys? Because, you know, Scandinavia, everybody's really clever and smart and everything's, you know, tip-top-tastic. It transpires that their compensation scheme is very far from being perfect. Some countries, in fact, many countries have a, a form of verification. You know, if a farmer's lost livestock or an animal's been killed, then you need a, an expert to come in and you know, perhaps take DNA swabs or look at puncture wounds, whatever, and do some sort of verification and say, yeah, that's definitely a lynx. We will pay you some money. But in Norway, in, the, in most cases, that doesn't happen. So yeah. in 97% of cases where, where money was paid out because a lynx has supposedly killed a sheep, there was no form of verification. It's almost like you, you phone up and say, right, I've lost six sheep to lynx, and then you get a check or, or money appears in your bank account. So it's a very loose, very cavalier system. And I think many people would admit that that is very far from being an ideal way to do things. And, and you can see how mistakes can be made. It could be other predators that are killing things. It could just be that the sheep have just disappeared, fell off a cliff, got hit by an avalanche onto somebody else's land, or somebody's abusing the system because it's easy to do. So the scientists reckon that the compensation scheme is actually exaggerating quite significantly, in some cases up to nine times the number of sheep that are actually getting killed by lynx, which isn't to say there isn't an issue. There is an issue for sure. Um, mm. Lynx do kill sheep in Norway and they do in other parts of Europe as well, just not to the same extent. Elsewhere in Europe, sheep killing by lynx is a much more localised, much smaller scale issue. It's only one or two animals, one or two lynx doing it now and then, as opposed to Norway, where it seems to be a lot of the lynx population are actually killing sheep. Yeah, it is astonishing that they don't even have a sort of fairly basic policing system in Norway for funding a sheep carcass compensation payment because people could just take a, a photo on their mobile phone, the farmer, shepherd or whatever, could just email a photo and say, this is it, this is the reason why I think this is a lynx impact. And that basic assessment could be done then, but it's actually just taken on people's word, isn't it? Yeah, and it's not like the lynx is the only predator they've got to think about. You know, they've got foxes, they've got golden eagles, they've got wolverines, wolves and bears, and all of them are implicated in sheep killing. And it doesn't seem like there's an awful lot of thought given to trying to separate all that out and, and define, you know, what species is doing what and causing how much damage. Yeah. So, yeah, that's the system they have. And I think many people over there would agree it's not perfect. Sure. Can we go on to some of the issues that we might get? Maybe issues like domestic cats, impacts on domestic cats, impacts on domestic dogs, or even suppression and impacts on the native European wildcat? I guess there's two things there. There's concerns that people may have in this country about the prospect of lynx being here, and then there are the main concerns or conflicts that actually arise in those parts of Europe where there are lynx. Yeah, lynx are capable of killing domestic cats or even small domestic dogs, and it is not impossible that they can kill a wildcat. It certainly has been recorded. It's worth saying before I get into those subjects in any more detail that the number one conflict between people and lynx in Europe is fairly uniformly the number one conflict across Europe. And it's actually about deer, as you might expect. You know, lynx are, are killing woodland deer, particularly roe deer, uh, week in, week out, all year round. That's what they do. Yes, but that doesn't translate to Britain, does it, that one? Not as well as it would in other European countries, I don't think. No, because I think in, in other countries, there probably are fewer deer than we have here. Yeah. At least in certainly Scotland and, and some parts of the UK. 
The other thing about that is that hunters very often make up a bigger proportion of the population in other European countries. You are 60 times more likely per head of population to be a hunter in Norway than you are in the UK. And so you can see, and they've got a lot fewer deer than we have, you can see how there'd be a conflict there and in other countries. So I don't think that would be the number one conflict in the UK. I I suspect it would probably be around livestock because I do think that lynx they don't routinely kill sheep. Occasionally, they probably will. You know, one or two may kill the odd sheep now and then. It'll be very small, manageable, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the, it's going to generate a very small conflict. It may generate quite a large one. Yeah, sure. In terms of pets, there's not really a big outcry about Eurasian lynx killing pets anywhere in, in continental Europe that I'm aware of. Mm. There's a much bigger issue with wolves doing that, particularly with hunting dogs, which are, are highly prized, very valuable. That they do get killed by wolves, and that causes a lot of strife in the Nordic countries. In terms of the wildcat, Eurasian lynx and, and wildcats do share a number of landscapes right up to the present day, right across Europe. They do coexist and share those landscapes. They're not really looking for the same things. They're not competing with one another for the same food resources. As you know, wildcats are interested in small prey, such as mice and bulls and perhaps rabbits. Eurasian lynx, as we know, looking for bigger stuff. That said, lynx can kill wildcats. Like I say, it has been uh, has been noted, but nowhere do I think that's happening at a scale that would have a population effect. In Britain, we had lynx and wildcats together for thousands of years. You know, for the vast majority of of the time since the Ice Age, those two species lived together, and of course, it, it was the lynx that happened to go extinct first. So I think they can live cheek by jowl. I mentioned that lynx don't compete with wildcats for food. One thing that does, of course, compete with wildcats for food is the red fox. Their diet can be really quite focused on small mammals, mice, bulls, and rabbits, just mm. like the wildcat. Uh, and so there's an animal that is going to be competing with wildcats, and yet is an animal that the Eurasian lynx very typically uh, kills. Uh, right across Europe, we know there's some diet studies right across the continent that lynx are routinely taking out foxes. Sometimes they eat them, sometimes they don't, but whenever they encounter them, they tend to knock them off. Uh, they don't want yeah. them around. I think largely because the fox is well equipped to discover the, the feeding remains that are the lynx. You know, it's, it's uh, a deer and it'll have that carcass for four or five days perhaps, and it's going to feed off it repeatedly until it's taking what it needs. In the meantime, foxes are often detecting that carcass and coming in and, and scavenging it and stealing it. And I think that's probably the main reason why lynx are, are routinely killing foxes. And yes, it, that's going to get the links into many people's good books, isn't it? The uh, suppression of fox numbers. It may well do, yeah. And you can see how that might have beneficial impacts on other wildlife species, including wildcat, but also because another species that we're very worried about here in Scotland is the capercaillie. Some people say to me, well, surely the lynx are just going to eat the last capercaillie. Again, lynx can kill capricari. We know that that happens in other parts of Europe and Asia, particularly where deer densities are very low. Then they can switch onto smaller games, such as hares and woodland grouse. But we know from studies in Sweden and Finland that as the lynx population recolonized uh, landscapes that they'd been pushed out of by humans, they've got some really good wildlife data in that part of the world. They were able to demonstrate that populations of mountain hare, black grouse and capercaillie actually rose in response to the arrival of the lynx, which might seem counterintuitive. But of course, what the scientists reckon was going on was that the fox population was being suppressed as the lynx came in. And the fox was actually a greater predator of the small game than the lynx was because the lynx 
well, A has a much larger home range, it's a much lower density animal, a landscape's going to support more foxes than it is lynx typically. And so those foxes and their predation is going to have a greater impact on the small game than the lynxes. But the lynx can come in, kill some foxes, and actually perhaps just repel them, you know, force them to move out of the landscape, if you like. Yeah, sure. No, I think that's a very interesting dynamic, and it does show you you've got to know all the subtleties of the debate because, um, yeah, the, the consequences may not be as crude as you think, actually. So that's an important nuance, yeah. Um, you mentioned lynx and, uh, and deer and concern in parts of the continent where deer are in less dense numbers, and so they're more prized and valued by the hunters. Harsher winters mean bigger mortality for things like roe deer in, on the continent, where it's not quite the same here. But this issue of what was going to be the word of the week, or the words of the week, until you trumped it with your wonderful word, the landscape of fear. And this is all about deer, roe deer, fallow deer, red deer, seeker deer, here in Britain, not really perceiving a threat from a predator. Although, of course, those of us who study the sort of feral, wild, big cats that might be around do think some of the deer have cottoned onto big predators. So the landscape of fear is part of what the lynx brings to an ecosystem and the way it influences the deer, the wild ungulates it's predating on. Can you sort of take us through that issue? It does get talked about quite a lot. And I think the reason people ask about it is because their introduction to the landscape of fear and their familiarity to it really stems from the narrative about wolves being reintroduced into Yellowstone in the USA. However, I do think that this maybe oversimplifies things. Hmm. And, and I'm not sure how transferable the, the sort of situation between wolves and their prey in a U.S. national park is to Europe, even to wolves in Europe, and, and particularly actually to a cat. I'm not aware of any research uh, or any studies that have actually shown that there is such a thing as a landscape of fear with Eurasian lynx and wild ungulates. There is a suggestion, as I've just mentioned, that there may well be a landscape of fear going on with lynx and foxes. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that, that science from Sweden and Finland suggests that, you know, as well as direct killing, there may well be behavioural changes of the foxes, perhaps indicating certain areas of higher lynx activity. But that hasn't really been recorded for things like roe deer and chamois and other deer species like red deer. Uh, there have been instances where lynx, as they, when they were reintroduced into Switzerland and, and were spreading into new areas, their home ranges as they moved into new areas were much smaller because they were encountering naive prey. And then after a while, where they were really hammering the prey because they were really easy to kill because the prey didn't know what a lynx was, after mm-hmm. a while, after a few years, the lynx population had to change and adapt to the new circumstances of, I suppose, lower deer populations and more alert deer. The home ranges returned to much more normal size. So it was always that the colonizing front, you would get these much tighter home ranges and, and more naive prey. But actually, that pattern hasn't really been recorded anywhere else. Not yet, anyway. Uh, it may well be, but it hasn't been recorded elsewhere. And it's thought in that particular study, what was driving that was that there were hunting sanctuaries, areas in the landscape where human hunters weren't shooting the animals, but they were feeding them. So this would be rodeo and chamois. And you'd mm. get rodeo and chamois acting or occurring in very high densities and not being particularly predator-aware because they, they, they know they're not going to get shot there. Uh, and so they were easy to kill for the lynx, and they were in high concentrations. You know, they, could, they were doing surplus killing. It was so easy to encounter the next prey. So actually, that's quite a particular set of circumstances, and I don't think it's all that typical for, for most of the rest of Europe. Yes, something like a, a winter feeding station where the lynx get wise to the fact that the deer are going to be coming regularly, and so they just ambush them when yep. they need to. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, very good. 
David, can we move on to the reintroduction debate and procedures that might happen in a country like Britain where it's a live debate? And first of all, can you just brief us on one or two of the best sort of educational and engagement activities you've seen elsewhere in Europe where links has been reintroduced and there's been good engagement to help people through the sort of understanding and learning about links? Can you give us a good example? The best examples that I've come across in terms of engagement, and this is quite tightly bound up in terms of tourism and marketing areas to an audience would probably be from some of the German national parks in the form of the Harz National Park. There was a a reintroduction about 20 years ago and where they very much adopted the links as something that they wanted to engage the public with. So they worked really hard to make sure they had some really good press coverage going out in the local papers. They were working very closely with schools. The kids were really enthusiastic about this. And of course, Germany, like the UK, is quite an urban country. And I think increasingly, people who, who live in urban life, they want to, you know, as we know from the, the response to the end of lockdown, people just want to get the hell out of Dodge and, and get out into the countryside and, and breathe clean air and, you know, experience the green gym. And of course, they want a wild beauty. And what better thing to epitomize wild beauty than, than a lynx? It is a real poster child for, for wild spaces. So in people's minds, a place must be wild and beautiful if it has this wild and beautiful animal living in it. And so... Some of these national parks in Germany very quickly adopted that as a marketing icon. And I think the visitors kind of knew the chances of seeing a lynx are pretty spectacularly low, but it would definitely be non-existent if they stayed in Hamburg or Berlin or Hanover and didn't go to the national park. So they would do that. And the national park visitor centres just were festooned with lynx merchandise, lynx imagery and lynx educational tools. And they were really good at engaging with kids. And certainly when I went into these visitor centres, the kids were just absolutely fascinated by lynx. And I think what really struck me as well about the Hearts National Park, and I was there for the first time in about 2003, and the lynx had just been reintroduced you know, a couple of years previously, but they were already starting to get information out in their visitor centres about wolves coming. And so what we've seen in the sort of 10, 15 years since then, of course, are wolves increasingly moving out of Poland into eastern Germany, across Germany. So they were really good at anticipating things happening and getting the messages out in advance and engaging with the public. So I I was quite impressed with that. I think that's so important on so many levels, but you've still got to have, I think, some help and advice and compensation to people who do feel they are losing out somehow. And it's particularly bad, I think, if there's good engagement, but there's not attention to some of the troubleshooting that might be needed. Do they do that properly as well in the German situation? That has, in some cases, been retrofitted into some landscapes where reintroduction took place way back in the day, you know, in the 70s and 80s, where you didn't really do this touchy-feely thing. It was just a bunch (laughs) of academics or conservationists, you know, fulfilling their dream of getting these beasts out and, you know, and damn the consequences. But of course, as we know, that is not a good way to do it. It often doesn't work out because you've not done that public engagement of talking to the hunters and talking to the farmers and got them on side. So, for example, in Switzerland, they learned that the hard way and they ended up with a strong, very political conflict in the sort of, uh, late 90s, early 2000s with links as they, they started to have more of an effect on the deer populations in response to some harsh winters. The deer populations had crashed because of high winter mortality. The lynx predation, therefore, had a disproportionately greater effect. One of the reasons why the deer population collapsed in the first place, which made them more vulnerable to the winters, is because the foresters had lobbied for a higher cull of the deer populations because the deer were affecting trees. That kind of gets forgotten about in the narrative. It's all the lynx's fault, uh, despite <laughs> the fact the foresters in the winter had a, had a big part to play in it as well. 
And so the Swiss learned after a very hot conflict, and of course Switzerland has this strong tradition of democracy where you vote for all sorts of things, and I think there was a strong feeling that the rural public were disenfranchised. They, they had never been asked about whether they want things back, but yet they were having to live alongside the authorities caught up with that and made sure that they had a management system in place to deal with livestock getting lost, you know, having prevention measures. That's a lot better than having to constantly reactively pay money for things that are being killed. You put money into making sure it's harder for things to kill sheep in the first place. They did that. They also brought out a compensation scheme so when it did happen, it could be paid for. And the other thing they said was, right, okay, tell you what, if a lynx kills more than 15 sheep in a year, we'll call that a problem animal and we'll give a license to a state game warden to shoot that problem lynx. And that made people feel a lot better. Yeah, you know, if you're angry, yeah, shoot it. I feel better now. Great. <laughs> um, you know, I'm sure there are people who have a lot of problems with that. But that, I think, did help go some way towards building public acceptance. And interestingly, they've still got this rule about, you know, problem lynx, 15 sheep in a year, we'll shoot it. But actually, they haven't had to enact that since 2003 such as the, the low level of sheep killing that goes on in Switzerland these days, they might only lose 20, 30 sheep throughout the country in a year, and they may have something like 300 links running around the country. So mm. um, I think that's a, a pretty good system. It probably should have been built in from the outset, and that could have helped stave off any conflict from arising. But like I say, if you were to do a reintroduction now and some of the more recent ones, that is built in from the beginning. Yeah, you can do that. You can focus on an individual, a misbehaving individual, easier if it is radio collared. Presumably, that's why they can have those kinds of systems. Is that right? Yeah, partly. Um, some some of these animals have been collared. It also, of course, helps if you live in a landscape where there's a lot of snow. It makes it easier to track animals in the wintertime. So if they're not collared, you can follow footprints in the snow, and that gives you a bit of a clue what's going on as well. So different ways of doing it. Okay. Well, can we talk about different ways of doing a founder population? Say you're going to reintroduce links in a country that hasn't got them, say parts of Britain. What are the lessons from different parts of um, Europe and elsewhere where links have been reintroduced in terms of the numbers you might do it in per time and there's a ratio of males to females? What's your sort of reckoning? Yeah, there's lots of different lessons to learn. I mean, one, of course, is some releases have been clandestine, unofficial arguably illegal and that is not a good way of doing it that has never anywhere as far as i'm aware resulted in a thriving lynx population probably because they haven't used enough links or they've not got a sex ratio right or they're not behaviorally adapted or you've not done all the, the touchy feely engagement stuff with the local hunters and, and farmers and, and animals may well subsequently get persecuted so absolutely it's going to be done by the book you can, of course, use uh, zoo-born animals, and there have been instances of both successes and failures with both wild-caught and zoo-born animals. Generally speaking, I think if you're using zoo-born animals, you probably have to have a larger number of cats released because some of them almost certainly won't be behaviorally well-adapted. So the mm. Harts Mountains National Park reintroduction in Germany, they use zoo-born animals, and some of them they had to end up recapturing that weren't quite thriving in the wild in the way that they had hoped. So in terms of the numbers, again, a bit of a mixed bag. There was a, a reintroduction that took place in the 1970s in Slovenia, where it's thought that only six animals were released. And supposedly, quickly, within five, six years, there had been a large population had built up. Although I think retrospectively, we could probably say that was overestimated just how many there were. But we now know from, uh, from those, the, the six that were released, two of them were siblings. 
uh, and two of them was a, a mother and offspring. So genetically, pretty bad idea. And we now know that that was a bad idea because the Slovenian and, and subsequently, you know, it did spread into Croatia. That population, the Dinaric population, has not been doing well in the last few years. Mm-hmm. It's thought that that lack of um, genetic diversity was one of the critical factors, which is why there is now an EU life project that's been funded to capture additional animals from the Carpathian Mountains of Slovakia and Romania and release them into Slovenia and Croatia, so essentially genetically boost that population. So these and other projects tell us that you know we do have to have a, a decent number of, I would say, wild-caught lynx, preferably not closely related to one another, behaviorally well adapted to the landscape that they're going into. The modeling that I did for my own PhD suggested you might be looking for a, a founder population of somewhere in the area of 30 or so, maybe a bit more. Sex ratio, well, 50-50 perhaps, or, or maybe a wee bit more uh, females than males. Mm. It is important to have the right source population. I mean, it, it's quite tempting because it's just across the North Sea to go and get your links from Norway. <laughs> There's two reasons why you wouldn't do that. One of them I think we've already talked about is, it, well, it would be politically suicidal to be getting your links from a sheep-killing population. That would not be a good idea. And the other thing is that the links in Norway and indeed in Sweden don't exhibit a great deal of genetic diversity. Uh, despite being a big population, it's because 60 to 100 years ago, they were actually a really small remnant population in central Scandinavia it had been brought to us in pretty low numbers, possibly as, as few as 30 on a peninsula. So therefore, the genetic diversity isn't there. Whereas if you compare that with further east, you know, Finland or the Baltic Republics, we know that they are much more genetically mixed. Um, you know, Finland lost all of its links, but they were replenished in, in better mm-hmm. times, coming across the border from a massive population in Russia. So much greater genetic diversity in those countries, including Latvia and Estonia, these countries also have um, quota hunting of lynx. You know, there's a certain percentage of the population getting shot every year legally. And you could take um, source animals from these countries out of their, their hunting quota and effectively save the animals. They're genetically diverse and also they're not eating sheep. There are some parts of Finland where the lynx don't have great access to deer. They actually, they're surviving on mountain hare, which isn't great because it, it has implications for their body condition, fecundity, etc. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there are certainly plenty now roe deer living in Finland and white-tailed deer as well. So those lynx are eating deer. You could get them from Finland, Estonia, Latvia, uh, and I think they probably do pretty well. Say you did your 30, would you do your 30 in one episode or would you do it in two or three episodes staggered over a, a few years sort of gaps? I think you'd be limited by the, the practical logistics. You'd be very unlikely to get 30 in a one Yeah, That's a, a massive logistical challenge. It'd be expensive as well. I would suggest that they would probably get spread out over several release phases over a few years. And all radio collared and all monitored and all available for researchers and even the public to see uh, selectively on a website so people are understanding the movements and the behaviour? That's obviously going to depend on your budget. Um, and it's mm. almost certainly going to depend on the politics of the links reintroduction being agreed. I'd be surprised if there wasn't some form of requirement that the animals being released were going to be closely monitored. because there, there will be undoubtedly... Uh, a certain level of nervousness amongst certain people who will demand that they need to know exactly what's going on with these links. So, yeah, I can I can easily see a situation where the links would need to be monitored. It's expensive in terms of the kit. It's expensive in terms of having people to do it. I think that's probably 
that's likely, I think, to be the sort of scenario that, that we would see in this country, at least for the first few years. Obviously, animals would then breed in the wild. Their offspring wouldn't necessarily be collared. So within a few years, you would start to see that the proportion of the wild population that is collared would probably drop. In the early phase, the first generation at least each time, if there's a misbehaving individual or more than one, they're much easier to take out of the project, aren't they, if they are radio collared, if yeah. they're causing problems? Yeah, and, and I think we can learn quite a lot from a reintroduced population within the first five years or so, how they relate to the environment. And if it's pretty clear that there's not an awful lot of sheep killing going on, then maybe perhaps people start to relax and say, right, okay, I'm happy enough that they don't all have to be collared. Yeah. Yeah. And what are you going for with the sort of magic number into the future when you've got a genetically diverse metapopulation? 250, 300? I mean, obviously, that's going to take some time to get to, but is that what you feel you need for an animal like a lynx? You need 250, 300, really, to be thinking this is a secure, viable, ongoing population of large carnivores now in the landscape? I'm not a geneticist. I certainly would be guided by what other studies have concluded, but my feeling from my own research was that, yeah, you're probably looking at a figure of something like 200, 250 for long-term genetic viability. And at the time, certainly, that I did my research, looking at the availability of, of habitat and the availability of prey, certainly in the Scottish Highlands, it looks as if we've got enough well-connected habitat to support about 400 lynx, which would certainly seem to be a lynx population with long-term viability. Smaller populations could be viable in the long term if you're willing to have a very sort of hands-on form of management where you're, you're constantly intervening and perhaps dropping off fresh genes every few years. Swapping some around. Exactly, yeah. And that is happening in continental Europe. We do see several reintroduced populations. As I've suggested, some of them might have started off with too small a founder population, or perhaps the populations are doing well in good habitat, but they're kind of hemmed in by either natural barriers or busy you know, roads, railway lines. And so maybe there's an element of mixing going on. That is happening, certainly. Yeah. Certainly my research indicated that the Scottish Highlands had enough habitat, enough prey to support a viable lynx population. And I can only imagine the, the potential population increasing as we expand our woodland. In Scotland, we're currently expanding woodland by something like ten to 12,000 hectares per year. And in fact, Scottish Government has just announced that they wish the annual uh, woodland creation target to increase to 18,000 hectares a year in a few years' time. So there's going to be more and more woodland, which of course is deer habitat. So it stands to reason there may well be more and more deer I suspect conditions for lynx are going to continue to improve, and it may well be that if we want more trees and we don't want them eaten by deer, then perhaps there's a stronger argument for having some form of natural population control as well. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts on livestock guarding animals? Do you think there are certain recommendations? There's no doubt about it that livestock guarding animals do work with regards to deterring lynx. You know, in Romania and in Slovakia, where they've always had their large carnivores, you know, lynx, wolves, bears, they've always maintained their traditional shepherding, which includes the use of pretty big, fierce dogs. And I guess in those landscapes, it's, it's really the wolves and the bears that the shepherds are most concerned about. Because even with those, you know, three or four dogs, you know, a pack of six or seven wolves could outwit them or outfight them. And then mm. the one, one big bear could also uh, outfight those dogs. But there's no way a 20, 25 kilo lynx is going to tangle with three or four dogs twice its size so they are very effective 
Obviously, further west in Europe, where they did lose their lynx and their wolves and their bears, and they lost their traditional shepherding and therefore their ability to live alongside these predators, they've had to sort of reintroduce the more traditional methods. And that's not always easy to do. You know, it feels like people are taking a backward step, perhaps, and it, you know, then they feel like it's a bit of faff and hassle. Mm. But it has been shown that you can reintroduce the livestock guarding dogs into the landscapes, and it is effective, but not just dogs. Other species like llamas and donkeys have been trialed and shown to be pretty effective against lynx as well. So, yeah, it, it can work for sure. Yes. Yeah. And with llamas and donkeys, of course, it doesn't. it's not too labour-intensive. Uh, it's just one other grazing animal in with the others, isn't it? Yeah, I, I can imagine that they're probably a lot less work than having to you know to feed dogs every day and, and and dogs can be quite aggressive particularly if that's what they're being trained to do is defend the flock uh, you know i've certainly when i've been mountain biking around the romanian carpathians i've been chased by you know three or four massive dogs with, you know with like <laughs> spiky collars around you're like oh i've never pedaled as fast as is that in my life <laughs> and then after a while you just think i can't go any further i'm absolutely knackers you just sort of stand there but you know with your bike between you and these snarling beasts and I think what I did was reach down as if I was going to get a stone and, and they backed off. But yeah, they are quite scary beasts, whereas I think donkeys and llamas probably take a bit less looking after and are probably less of a liability of roaming around in a paddock with some sheep. It's all been very useful briefing for us, but obviously I'm now going to throw in the wild card and complicate things. Listeners to this podcast, of course, are interested in the fact that we may well have some feral, even naturalising medium large cats in britain and some of them may be lynx some of them are reported very faithfully as lynx by people who know nothing about the animal but sort of come across something which spooks them and alerts them and they go back and look on the internet and think gosh that's a, a lynx probably a eurasian lynx so what if there are some here already is that just something that is going to help the genetic diversity and the radio collar ones might bump into and reproduce with is it something that you find easy to comment and discuss or is it something which is really awkward and complicates the debate more than you like to consider i accept that it's perfectly possible and feasible that people may have released links in the past in my understanding of the kind of sightings uh, and records of big cats in the british countryside is that these over the years have largely related to large black cats uh, or perhaps fawn-coloured cats corresponding to a puma, and only a small minority are really corresponding to a potential lynx. And then, of course, we don't know exactly what species of lynx, or, or indeed whether it actually was a lynx. Maybe it was something like a serval. Who knows? Um, and I'm not aware of any particular part of the UK that where there's a preponderance of lynx sightings that suggest there might be a viable lynx population there. I mean, certainly 15, 20 years ago, there was quite a rash of sightings, at least being reported to me, from the Scottish borders of lynx sightings, but nothing else, you know, no large black cats, no fawn-coloured cats, which was quite unusual and suggested that perhaps maybe somebody had released some lynx in the Scottish borders. And who knows, maybe they're still there. I have no idea. I've, I've heard very little about them uh, in the last decade, if, if that's the case. So I think it's possible that they have been released. I don't think there's a viable population out there in terms of long-term viability. I mean, we've already heard about some of the genetic issues if you've got a very small founder population, in it, and particularly if you're not working with local communities to keep these animals quite safe. By analogy, when they released the Eurasian lynx in the Hearts National Park back in about 2000, they did so with quite a small budget. They didn't actually collar the cats. They just they got them out there and kind of hoped for the best. And then a few years later, 
they got extra budget. And they thought, right, well, we'll go and trap these cats and we'll put collars on them now that we've got the budget to do so. So they, was, they started capturing these animals. And at least two of the lynx that they caught had redundant zoo chips under their skin and they had nothing to do with the official release population. So it's pretty clear that you know, enthusiasts had been releasing links. Now, whether those links were there before the official reintroduction or whether the official reintroduced population was being supplemented by enthusiasts releasing zoo animals, I don't know. But it shows that, that it can be part of the picture. In terms of genetic disorders, thing you can look out for and very easily detect with a, a really chronically inbred lynx population? No, I mean, there certainly have been studies that have suggested that there are links with genetic problems. That's not, I would say, particularly common. It's nowhere near as, as big an issue as it has been for the Florida panther. And I don't think any of those issues were particularly obvious. You know, that if you were to see a lynx or get it on your camera tab, you'd say, oh, that one's got genetic problems. So no, I think the Florida panther is quite a, a famous case. You know, We know that they had problems with their testes. We know they had these kinks in the tail and they had this cow's lick on the, on the back as well. But no, mm. I'm not aware of anything like that being obvious in the Eurasian lynx population. Yeah. David, is there any final thing that you think we ought to quickly mention that we haven't touched on that is relevant to the reintroduction debate and the understanding of links? All I would say is, is kind of repeat what I'd said at the outset, is really that I think it's important if we're going to have a discussion about reintroducing the species to this country that we need to understand it as, as well as we can. Uh, and that means being pretty familiar with its ecology. And unfortunately, we now have a large body of science right across Europe these landscapes in Europe are not wilderness by any stretch of the imagination. These are, mm. these are busy, human-modified environments where there's farming and forestry and tourism and towns, railway lines, all sorts of things that you know we can really learn from those experiences and transfer them to improve our understanding in this country. So that's all I would really say is that I think we really need to make sure that we know the species well and then, by all means, have a well-informed discussion about it. Splendid. Okay. The availability of your book, David, uh, it's published by Scotland, The Big Picture. Tell us where you point people to go to, to look at copies and order copies. It's available online from most of the, the usual suspects. It's worth saying that Scotland, The Big Picture, who've actually produced a number of very impressive books about rewilding and red squirrels, etc., etc., is a, a charity based here in the Cairngorms. So by all means, if you want to help out a small charity that's interested in promoting the discussion about rewilding, then go to their online store on their website, which is scotlandbigpicture.com. You can buy it from Amazon, but actually you're just giving money to a massive corporation rather than a small charity in the Cairngorms. You can also buy it on the NHBS website, which uh, might be the best option for any listeners outside the UK as the postal charges are quite a bit less there. Natural History Book Service, that is. Yes, yeah. Okay, we'll put Scotland the Big Picture and the Natural History Book Service links on our website so people scrolling through that can see the availability of it from that. And you do get involved with wildcat um, issues, management issues, don't you, in your work and your colleagues do? I do, yeah. As part of my day job with the Cairngorms National Park Authority, I mean, I'm largely dealing with woodland and, and woodland expansion in, in the Cairngorms, but part of my day job is I sit on the project management group of a new project called Saving Wildcats, which is an EU life-funded project. It's led by the Royal Zoological Society of Scotland, but also has Nature Scott and Forest and Land Scotland as key partners. But we also have partners from the Junta de Andalusia in Spain who have a great deal of experience of the captive breeding and release of the Iberian lynx. Uh, and we also have Northern Zark 
uh, from Sweden, who again have lots of experience with captive reading. So th this project is recognising what the latest science is telling us is that the wild cat in Scotland is functionally extinct, which isn't to say that the animal is completely extinct, but we think that it is no longer a viable population. The, the levels of hybridisation are such that you know, there is no other recourse to save the animal than to captivate the, the species and release it into areas of suitable habitat where measures have been taken to limit hybridisation. So that's what the Saving Wildcats project is attempting to do with its various partners. It's a pretty big, ambitious project, and the planning permission has recently been granted to start a new captive breeding facility, purpose-built facility, uh, very much along the lines of the Iberian Venture Introduction Project in Spain. And that's going to be here in the Cairngorms with a view to releasing wildcats into suitable habitat two or three years hence. So again, an ambitious project, quite a complex one, but really I think it's the only way forward for wildcats in Scotland. At the moment, there is a, a captive uh, wildcat population right across the UK with, uh, with a stud book that's managed by the Royal Zoological Society of Scotland. So there's certainly enough cats in captivity at the moment to get that captive breeding programme started. There may well be recourse to using wild or indeed captive wildcats from elsewhere in Europe, especially as it's now, you know, in the last few years, it's been confirmed that the Scottish wildcat as a separate distinct subspecies doesn't or, or indeed never existed. So it's Felis sylvestris sylvestris, the same as it is in most of the European continent. So we, in theory, we can use animals from whether France, Germany, Spain, Switzerland, etc., which may well give us some added genetic diversity. Yeah, great. David? Thank you. It's all really helpful. And we're due to speak to Dr. Andrew Kitchener soon on wildcat issues. So we'll follow up some of the points we've just been covering with him. But it's obviously something we want to keep a watch on. But good luck with your work, David. And thanks ever so much for coming on Big Cat Conversations. OK, thanks very much, Rick. It's been a pleasure. David just mentioned the drop off in Lynx reports in Scotland that he was experiencing. Well, I'm pleased to report that we've linked up Paul MacDonald with David Hetherington, so recent past and any future link sightings that come to Paul's attention in Scotland will be shared with David. Paul has had some very recent ones from parts of southern Scotland which are being relayed. We heard from Paul MacDonald in episode 16 about his own sightings and his networking role to take reports, and we are due to hear from him again in a few episodes' time, as there is more to catch up on. Our next edition will return at the more usual fortnightly interval if you're listening on schedule and we have guests who've encountered big cats within the past three months in southern England. A Black Panther report from Berkshire and a Puma report from Gloucestershire and in both cases there is plenty of extra points to talk through and cameras have been put up in the locations so we'll discuss the ways those encounters are being followed up. OK, that wraps up episode 37 and once again, a big thanks to our guest, David Hetherington. Please look after yourselves, everyone, and thanks for supporting the show. All the best, and bye for now. <laughs>